With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Carrier Farm Therapeutics, for their support of this Myeloma Crowd Radio episode. Now, before we get started with the, today's show, I'd like to mention a few upcoming events. Later today, in just a couple hours, we'll be hosting a webinar about using a BECMA, or the new CAR-T Idacel, um, in the clinic. There'll be an hour-long discussion with Dr. Nina Shaw from UCSF, and you can register for that on melomacrowd.org forward slash events page. Now, as a reminder, also, we are running several studies inside the Health Tree Cure Hub platform. And one of those studies is a genetic study to learn which treatments are showing the best results in the real world. It's a very practical question um, that we can help contribute to finding the answer for if um, we do this. So to join that study, you can go to healthtree.org and request that we help complete your profile for you. We have a team of people who can help you do that, so it's easy. We have over 500 patients participating to date, and it's particularly important to have a really large group of patients because um, once you break patients into these different subgroups, you want to have enough examples um, and real experiences so you can see patterns. Now on to today's show. So treatment for newly diagnosed myeloma patients is changing quite dramatically. We've always thought of the standard of care being the use of an immunomodulator, kind of like Revlimid, a proteasome inhibitor like Velcator carfilzomib, and then dexamethasone. But about seven years ago, new monoclonal antibodies like daratumumab and isotuximab and elotuzumab were introduced. And as usual, they were approved for patients who had relapsed multiple times. But then they started bringing these treatments up to earlier use. So in today's show, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Peter Voorhees with us from the Levine Cancer Institute in North Carolina. So welcome, Dr. Voorhees. We're so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much uh, for having me. It's great to be here. And before we get started, let me just do a short introduction for you. Um, Dr. Peter Voorhees received his medical degree from the University of Michigan. He continued his postgraduate studies with internal medicine residency and chief residency at the University of Wisconsin and a hematology oncology fellowship at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Voorhees is director of outreach for hematologic malignancies in the plasma cells disorder program in the Department of Hematologic Oncology and Blood Disorders at the Levine Cancer Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was previously an assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Voorhees is board certified in hematology and internal medicine. His research focuses on the development of new strategies for the treatment of myeloma. He's also interested in chemo-related toxicity and developing uh, tools that predict for adverse events with treatment. 
And relevant to today's show, he was very key in running the Griffin trial, one of the earliest tests for the use of geratumumab in newly diagnosed patients. And he also studies resistance to myeloma therapy. So you're a perfect person to, <laughs> to do this show with us today. So thank you so much. Sure thing. Thank you. Um, well, let's just kind of get started. Um, as you look at this myeloma landscape, that is changing. And we're so fortunate to have these newer treatments getting approved and so much development. Do you want to just give us an overview of just overall strategies to develop longer remissions for newly diagnosed myeloma patients? Sure thing. So there's really kind of three components to initial therapy or what we call frontline or first-line therapy for multiple myeloma patients. And we can kind of modify, you know, any one of the three components to try and improve the, the duration of remission for myeloma patients. So the first component is uh, induction uh, chemotherapy, which is the initial treatment strategy uh, for myeloma patients with the goal of driving, you know, the burden of myeloma down substantially and by doing so, you know, improving, you know, the symptoms that a patient is experiencing from their multiple myeloma. There's then the consolidation phase. Now, for those patients that are older or have numerous medical conditions or elect not to pursue transplant, you know, consolidation may just con uh, consist of continuing the initial induction therapy to drive the burden of disease lower. Uh, for those patients, you know, that are, are fit, you know, and, and potential candidates for high-dose melphalan chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant, we will oftentimes use that as a way of kind of consolidating the initial response, basically driving the response even further, and by, do, by doing so, prolonging the remission. And then the third component is the maintenance phase. You know, so this, this is easier on patients. So after the initial induction, with or without the transplant consolidation, uh, patients will go on a, a lower dose of perhaps single-agent revlimid or lenalidomide, um, although there is uh, emerging data on the use of two drug strategies uh, for maintenance uh, therapy as well. And, and again, you know, you can tweak any one of these three modules to, to improve remissions for patients. Mm -hmm. And do you want to talk about um, like this idea of your first remission being your best remission? Because I sort of want you to emphasize that. I, I didn't know that as a newly diagnosed patient. I, and I wish I, you know, had learned that <laughs> when I was picking my first treatment. Sure. So I think, you know, we have the opportunity when the disease is new and has never been exposed to, to prior drugs, you know, to achieve um, remissions that in many instances, particularly for standard risk patients, can last many, many years. And one of the things that I always tell patients, you know, when I'm counseling them on whether or not they want to pursue for example, autologous stem cell transplant as consolidation therapy after their initial induction treatment, or when we're talking about maintenance strategies, you know, after they're done with their initial therapy, you know, I always stress to them the fact that, you know, the landscape for myeloma therapy is dramatically changing. You know, to your point, you know, you talked about a program that you'll be having later uh, on uh, Abecma or uh, Idacel, which is the new CAR T-cell product directed against BCMA that was recently FDA-approved for treatment of relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. 
And while that is a, a milestone achievement uh, for multiple myeloma patients, you know, it's clear that we have a lot to learn about CAR T-cell therapy and how to make it better. Um, and we'll only get better at it as time goes on. We'll have bispecific antibodies that are FDA approved in the near future. Future, We'll learn how to use those bispecific antibodies better as time goes on. You know, we'll have novel, you know, combination immunotherapies for relapse multiple myeloma. So the longer your first remission is, you know, the better we're going to be at treating relapse disease. Yeah, that's an important point because I've had some friends who have had myeloma for 25 years, and they were able to do that by jumping from one new thing to the next new thing to the next new thing. And as you look at these, this wave of new therapies that are coming to the clinic, and now you're bringing them up earlier, like what we're going to talk about today, it's really stunning how many options there are for for patients. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, the, the landscape um, has improved dramatically over the last uh, several years, and just within the last year, it's it's really quite stunning the number of uh, new FDA approvals that, that uh, we've seen in myeloma. And this is not just new combinations of therapies. I mean, we certainly have seen that, but, you know, completely new therapies uh, that have been FDA approved as well. So it's really an exciting time. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so what do you want to talk about the strategy to use these monoclonal antibodies in earlier lines of therapy? I've heard some of these drugs referred to as like bacon, like it's better with everything in the um you know in the later lines of therapy so obviously you have to start there in your the clinical trials and then you bring them up to earlier lines what's the logic and the rationale for doing that yeah so whenever you're testing a a new therapy and you're uncertain about its safety profile and it how effective it's ultimately going to be you know you first are going to kind of explore the use of that agent you know, for patients who, who no longer have uh, the ability to benefit, you know, from the therapies that are tried and true and readily available to them. So looking at the CD38 antibodies, so you've got uh, Darzalex or Daratumumab, and then you have uh, Sarcleza or uh, Isatuximab, you know, let's just focus on Daratumumab for the moment. That was the one that was first FDA approved back in 2015, and it was initially uh, FDA approved. Uh, in patients with relapsed refractory uh, multiple myeloma uh, who had disease that was resistant to uh, an imid like lenalidomide, for example, as well as a proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib, uh, or patients who have received at least three prior lines of therapy, and it was approved as a standalone treatment. And mm -hmm. in that context, we saw response rates of 30%. And for those patients that had deep responses to just single-agent daratumumab, you know, they had actually quite durable uh, remissions. Now, in cancer therapy in general, you know, whenever you see a, a, a hit, you know, a good hit for efficacy, particularly if it's well-tolerated as daratumumab and isatuximab are, you know, you tend to move those into earlier uh, therapy. And not only that, you know, if the safety profile of a particular drug is good, you know, that lends itself well to being able to combine, you know, with other strategies. So with both daratumumab and isatuximab, you know, a large number of studies were launched in earlier relapse myeloma where the CD38 antibody was combined with kind of standard of care 
combination strategies uh, for relapsed uh, myeloma patients. And consistently, I mean, whether you're looking at DARA or whether you're looking at esituximab, the addition of one of these CD38 antibodies to kind of standard regimens, whether it's palmolidomide index, carfilzomib index, bortezomib index, letalidomide index, you know, increases the likelihood of response. It increases, increases the likelihood of a deep response, including complete remission, increases the likelihood of achieving minimal residual disease negativity. And in all of the relapse studies, that translates into an improvement in progression-free survival. So, mm-hmm. and not only that, but, you know, the, the addition of these antibodies, you know, was shown to be very safe. So, you know, we then take the next step and is to bring these into the frontline uh, setting. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's amazing what's happened, especially when you think about the these combinations. And I've heard other myeloma um, experts say, you know, you get these 30% responses or 35% responses. And that's pretty common, like right? So carfilzomib and and some of the other types of therapies are kind of in that same range for relapsed patients. But then when you combine them, it significantly increases. But you have to test it first alone, right? Yes, that that's exactly right. Uh, for the reasons that we mentioned before, you know, we have to understand the safety. You know, we have to mm-hmm. understand how active uh, the agent is. Um, in and of itself, you know, but, but again, you know, when we have a positive signal, you know, then, you know, we, we, we you know, test it in combination strategies and we bring it earlier in, into the treatment paradigm. And this is not just the case with multiple myeloma, it's the case with cancer therapy uh, in, in general. And now we have, you know, frontline, you know, studies, you know, with daratumumab in multiple myeloma, both in the transplant and in the non-transplant setting, that again completely recapitulates what we see in the relapse setting, which is adding DARA to standard upfront myeloma therapy is safe, um, improves the depth of response, increases the likelihood of minimal residual disease negativity, uh, which is the holy grail of complete remissions, you know, and can improve progression-free survival. Yeah, I think it's amazing the, the impact that it's had. So, can you address? Um, just strategies, I guess. Some, sometimes I hear some doctors talk about, you like, save these therapies for later, and then I hear other doctors say, no, you should just use everything the best up front. Um, do you want to address that sort of controversy in the myeloma world and, and yeah. bringing these up? Yeah. So, absolutely. And, and it's an understandable question. You know, the, 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 the thought is, you know, if you bring these new effective therapies into the frontline setting, you know, the question is, is at relapse, you know, how are you going to control the disease and are the patients going to have more difficult to treat disease at the time of relapse and how does that impact, you know, their long-term overall survival? So there's this uh, metric that we look at in clinical trials to kind of get at this issue. It's called progression-free survival two And basically what that is, it looks at, you know, so a patient with newly diagnosed myeloma goes on a multiple myeloma clinical trial, um, and from the time they start that trial, you know, they go through their initial therapy as part of the trial. You know, they then relapse down the road, could be many years later, they receive second-line therapy, you know, and then we measure when the disease relapses or progresses after that second line of therapy. So, you know, if the 
disease is terrible at the time of relapse when you've incorporated your new therapy into the frontline setting, you know, the, 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 the durability of remission in the second line should be far shorter, you know, and you may wind up seeing that the progression-free survival, too, between the two arms is the same. But, in fact, that's not the case. I mean, if you look at the Maya trial, which was lenalidomide and dexamethasone with or without daratumumab in the non-transplant setting, progression-free survival, too, was longer for those patients that received daratumumab as part of initial therapy. And then there was another study looking at the melphalan prednisone bortezomib backbone, which we don't use much in the United States, with or without daratumumab. And again, and in that trial, progression-free survival two was longer when daratumumab was part of the frontline therapy. So yes, I understand the theoretical concern, you know, that uh, treatment of relapse may be a bit more challenging when you bring these effective therapies to frontline, but the fact that progression-free survival two continues to be longer suggests, you know, that these patients have disease that can be readily managed at the time of relapse, and the benefits of the longer initial remission by bringing your best therapy to the front line far outweighs that theoretical risk of harder-to-treat disease at relapse. So I think mm-hmm. that the majority of us feel, you know, that you've got to, you know, put your best foot forward. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, and I just kind of wanted you to emphasize that because, it's important what you do at the very beginning to get the longest remissions possible. Back to your earlier point that there are a lot of drugs in development and treat or different types of treatments and new targets in development. So there will be a lot of options to try at relapse. Um, but the longer that you're in, the better the development or the more development that's being done too. Well, let's. Um, you mentioned the, the three: the monoclonal antibodies, daratumumab, isotuximab. And elotuzumab, is elotuzumab really used a lot in the early um, setting? Because I see most of the trials are using daratumumab and ezotuximab. Yeah, so, you know, I, I you know, with elotuzumab, you know, kind of, um, we, we hit a bit of a surprise, if you will. So, so um, elotuzumab is an antibody directed against a uh, protein called SWAMF7, you know, that's expressed um, on the surface of myeloma cells. And it's approved for use in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone for relapsed myeloma patients. Mm -hmm. It's also approved in combination with pomalidomide and dexamethasone for relapsed myeloma patients. Um, So there was a study that was done in the frontline setting. These are patients that were, um, you know, not transplant eligible, and they either received lenalidomide and dexamethasone or lenalidomide and dexamethasone with elotuzumab. And unfortunately, um, the progression-free survival was not different uh, between the two arms. So even though elotuzumab Mm -hmm. helped the relapse patients, it does not appear, you know, this has appeared in press release. We need to see, you know, more details about the study uh, emerge, you know, but at least the preliminary um, readout is that, you know, it did not achieve its uh, primary uh, objective. So, so I don't think we're going to be seeing uh, much use with uh, elotuzumab in the frontline setting. Daratumumab has clearly shown benefit in the frontline mm-hmm. setting, whether it's combined with uh, therapy in the non-transplant setting or combined with therapy um, for patients that are eligible for transplant. And there are ongoing studies uh, incorporating isotuximab into standard of care regimens for newly diagnosed myeloma patients and those studies have yet to read out. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just a different target, right? So SLAM F7 is the target for elotuzumab, but for daratumumab and ecetuximab, it's CD38, right? That's correct. And, you know, when elotuzumab was first being uh, tested in the relapse space, you know, it didn't have any significant single-agent activity, but it seemed to um, enhance the efficacy of drugs like lenalidomide and pomalidomide. Um, mm-hmm. So whereas, you know, both isatuximab and daratumumab had a single-agent response, um, you know, in the 30% range or so. So um, I, I do think as standalone therapies, the CD38 antibodies are more potent uh, than, than elotuzumab, and that may be in part, you know, why we're seeing better efficacy of DARA and ESA in the frontline setting. Mm-hmm. Now, daratumumab and esetuximab um, both started out as IV administration, where you have this really long infusion the first time, and it kind of gets shorter over time. And then um, I know Janssen developed fast daratumumab, fast pro, or DARAFASPRO, and I think um, Sanofi is in the process of developing a sub-Q administration for esetuximab as well. Um, are there any advantages or disadvantages in terms of how well they work or side effects or just ease of administration for the IV versus the um, versus the sub-Q shot? Yeah. So there was a randomized study that looked at subcutaneous daratumumab with IV daratumumab and again, this was done um, in relapsed refractory myeloma patients as a standalone therapy. And to make a long story short, the response rate was identical uh, between the two arms. And interestingly, there was a lower rate of infusion-related reactions with the subcutaneous mm-hmm. uh, administration. So from a side effect perspective, with that first dose, the, the infusion-related reaction seems to be less with the subcutaneous administration, and then obviously the infusion chair time is significantly shorter with the subcutaneous um, approach. Um, potential disadvantages with the subcutaneous approach, you know, some patients will have uh, some level of discomfort at the site of injections. Um, it's a bit unusual for someone to have to switch back to IV in that circumstance, although it sometimes occurs. Um, and then the other thing is potential cost. Um, subcutaneous daratumumab is more expensive than intravenous daratumumab, and, and how that translates into increased cost for the patient, you know, is going to be dependent on, you know, a particular patient's insurance plan. Hmm. I did not know that. Well, I, I think if somebody's on daratumumab, they should probably ask their doctor if FASPRO is an option for them, and then they can have that conversation, at least to know that it's an option. It might get you to spend less time in the clinic. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, and in these new trials, I, I mean, we can go through several of them because there are so many of them. I looked them up last night, and, uh, wow, there's a whole bunch that are for fit patients, unfit patients, before transplant, after transplant. But what you're saying um, is that you can use these potentially quad therapies like RVD or something like that or KRD in addition to isotuximab or um, daratumumab, whether you're going to transplant or not, right? So it's, it applies for you regardless of that, that transplant plan. Yeah, I guess what I would say is, you know, in the U.S. and I think in in many areas of the world, I think most of us agree that the the triplet backbone of an IMID 
like lenalidomide, a proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib or carfilzomib, and dexamethasone is kind of the, the, the backbone. Um, and in the transplant setting, you know, we've shown that the addition of daratumumab to that triplet backbone uh, improves depth of response. Um, the Cassiopeia trial, which looked at uh, bortezomib thalidomide and dexamethasone with or without daratumumab, showed an improvement in depth of response, including MRD negativity with the addition of DARA, and uh, that also translated into improvement in progression-free survival. In the Griffin trial, we showed that the addition of daratumumab to the lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone, or RBD backbone uh, more than doubled um, the likelihood of achieving minimal residual disease negativity. And our follow-up is a bit shorter, um, so we've yet to show that progression-free survival advantage, uh, but we're hopeful that with longer follow-up, we will uh, see that emerge. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the idea of using a quadruplet in a non-transplant patient is a work in process. Uh, there are mm -hmm. two studies that are ongoing addressing that very issue, I'm looking at RVD with or without daratumumab um, in transplant ineligible patients. That's called the uh, Cepheus trial, uh, which is ongoing. Um, Sanofi has a very similar trial called the IMROS trial, which is looking at RVD with or without isotuximab. Uh, for patients not going through transplant as part of initial therapy. Um, I know that there are some providers that are using uh, CD38 antibodies with uh, RVD um, in the non-transplant setting, you know, but, you know, that that remains a work in process. I, I think, you know, there's very strong data now on the use of quads uh, in, the, in the transplant uh, setting, though, for sure. I think for the non-transplant patients, though, uh, daratumumab with lenalidomide and dexamethasone has performed remarkably well, and I think you're seeing a lot more utilization of daratumumab with lenalidomide and dexamethasone over bortezomib and lenalidomide dexamethasone, um, just given the, the data from the Maya trial. And then in that particular trial, I mean, progression-free survival four years out is still at 60%. It's going to be the longest progression-free survival of a non-transplant study, uh, study that's ever been reported. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Well, that's amazing. And even with, in, without the proteasome inhibitor, that's so interesting. I wonder what the role yeah. of that, you know, well, like skipping that is, is I, it would reduce neuropathy for sure. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and that's, you know, an important question. You know, I think uh, we'd love to see a comparison of daratumumab Lendex to bortezomib Lendex uh, to see how they would perform against one another. But to your point, you know, certainly from a safety perspective, you'd certainly see more neuropathy in the bortezomib arm. You know, so um, do all newly diagnosed transplant ineligible patients need a quadruplet? Um, they may not. You know, they, they may actually benefit very much from, from a triplet therapy. And I think that the Cepheus and Imros trial, you know, will help us better understand the role of quadruplets in that setting. You know, but for the higher-risk patients, you know, that may be very appropriate. And, and I think that that's where you are seeing quadruplets used increasingly um, in the non-transplant setting is for those patients that have high-risk disease. Yeah, uh, what, what's important about what you're saying is there are so many different ways that you need to, to test this in clinical trials. Like you could compare DARA RevDEX with the whole quadruplet, you know, DARA Rev Bortezomib DEX. You could compare it with 
Kyprolis, you could compare it. And um, as I was looking at those different clinical trials, this is this is actually why we started this radio program, to help patients understand the clinical trials that are open and available because um, these are important research questions that will benefit us as patients, and we don't know until you're able to run the trial and get the data out to say, oh, gosh, you know, you could do Dararevdex if you're a newly diagnosed patient, and, and that might be just perfect, and you might not need the quad. So I always encourage patients to consider clinical trials at every stage of treatment, whether they're newly diagnosed or relapsed. But this clinical trial process that you're you're doing is so important because you mentioned the Griffin trial, and um, in looking at the open trials for newly diagnosed patients, you know there's there are so many. There are transplant ineligible and older patients. There's kyprolis use with daratumumab, like KRD plus dara, in older but fit patients. There's um, daratumumab. And interestingly, like dexamethasone, thalidomide, revlimid, and bortezomib in patients with kidney issues. I mean, you're doing so many trials to learn so many things for us. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's uh, – yeah, I completely agree with you. I think uh, participation in clinical trials um, is incredibly valuable. I think it's important for folks to know that, you know, um, typically, you know, when we have a clinical trial open – you know, if it's a randomized trial, you know, you're never being randomized to a placebo intervention or no therapy. I mean, you're getting the best available standard of care, and we're really looking to see whether, you know, changing that or modifying it, whether it's adding a new drug, whether it's replacing one of those drugs with one that we think may be more effective, you know, um, you're, you're getting uh, excellent therapy and I think it is important to pay it forward. You know, we wouldn't have drugs like uh, bortezomib, carfilzomib, lenalidomide, pomalidomide, daratumumab, isotuximab, elotuzumab, et cetera, et cetera. We wouldn't have these things if people did not participate in clinical trials. Um, these things wouldn't move up into earlier lines of therapy, making that initial treatment more effective unless people participate in clinical trials. So. It's incredibly important, you know, to, to consider a clinical trial as part of your therapy, not only to improve the therapy that you may be receiving, you know, but to um, answer the questions that we need to answer, you know, for patients that will be diagnosed in the future. Mm-hmm. And you might get early access to some of these things. Like when you look at the strategy to use teratumumab or isotuximab, um earlier lines of therapy, well, you couldn't really do that unless you joined the trial because... It's not approved for that yet. So yep. sometimes that's, it gives you really exactly early right. access and really good care because you're watched really carefully. So I yep. I don't know. I'm I'm a super fan of clinical trials. Um let's let me ask some questions as well. So I know some myeloma patients can relapse after this monoclonal antibody use. Um are there any known, you know, causes of relapse or certain patients who tend to relapse? after using them more than others that you've seen? Yeah, so the, the, the data on resistance to the CD38 antibodies is, um, I think, in its infancy. So there's probably some truth to the fact that, you know, the more CD38 you have on your myeloma cell, the more likely it is that you're going to respond to therapy, you know, but 
And what winds up happening, anyone who goes on daratumumab or isatuximab, the levels of CD38 do drop, you know, when you start uh, treatment, you know, but there's no clear data yet that that CD38 level drop, you know, predicts uh, for eventual uh, relapse. You know, so it's going to be much more complicated than levels of CD38 sitting on the cell surface. There's probably going to be changes um, kind of in the uh, immune background, you know, that uh, predict, you know, whether someone's going to um, uh, relapse or not. I mean, these are questions, you know, that uh, we need to answer. And, you know, these ongoing clinical trials, you know, are doing exactly that. So we need to look at the, my the characteristics of the myeloma at initial diagnosis and then at the time of relapse and look to see what has changed, you know, in the disease, what has changed in the immune microenvironment or the bone marrow microenvironment to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. Or did the genetics change or like what you're saying? Exactly. And then in some of the trials, I saw, interestingly, that, um, and I've heard some doctors talk about this, that some some combinations are steroid-sparing, which they drop the dexamethasone, which would, you know, send all myeloma patients cheering. <laughs> but um, how do the myeloma, the, these monoclonal antibodies, work with the steroids or, um, because most of these combinations use the steroid, right? So... What's the, the play between the two, I guess? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, steroids, unfortunately, um, are, you know, a, a part of the CD38 antibody treatments. Even when daratumumab, for example, was approved as a standalone therapy back in 2015, uh, it came with a, a steroid premedication. So although it was technically monotherapy, quote-unquote, you know, people were getting steroid as a premedication to reduce, reduce their risk of infusion-related reactions with every single dose. So they were getting weekly uh, steroid for the first two cycles and then every two weeks for the next four cycles and then every four-week steroid thereafter. Um, and then with these combination strategies, since we're pairing up drugs like daratumumab and isatuximab with kind of standard of care backbone myeloma regimens, you know, all of those myeloma backbone regimens have dexamethasone as part of them. So, uh, unfortunately, you know, the steroid uh, shows up there as well. There was actually an interesting study um, that was done by Sanofi, which looked at uh, isatuximab, kind of a standalone therapy, with or without weekly dexamethasone, and the response rate was actually quite a bit higher with the inclusion of the weekly dexamethasone. And it was statistically significant. Um, and this was in a group of patients where you would have predicted that the majority of them had disease that had progressed at some point in the past on dexamethasone therapy. So I thought that that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say that, you know, unfortunately, you know, if DARA or ESA are, are, are combined, you know, with a dexamethasone-containing regimen, that that's probably how they should be used. What I will tell you, though, that in clinical practice, you know, for those patients that really have horrible side effects of steroid, and there are many that do, you know, you can safely remove the steroid um, from the regimen and not incur, you know, infusion-related reactions. The infusion-related reactions of these agents 
typically is seen with the first one to two doses and then subsequently, you know, goes away for the vast majority of patients. So you can get rid of the steroid. Yeah, and that's why you were including the steroid in the first administrations anyway, right, to just prevent these infusion-related reactions? That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Well, do you mind if we go back to your MRD negativity comment? So you you said, like, you know, MRD negativity is this holy grail of of treatment options. Do you want to just describe why MRD is being used more and more um, in myeloma clinical trials and why it's so important? Sure. So MRD stands for minimal residual disease, and there's a couple of different ways that it can be evaluated. And at the end of the day, it's just a more sensitive way of picking up uh, trace levels of myeloma left behind. So when I tell a patient they've achieved a complete response to therapy, you know, there still can be a very sizable burden of disease left behind when you dig more carefully. You know, but, you know, we now have techniques, you know, where you can look at, you know, say over a million, you know, bone marrow cells and, you know, look to see whether any of those are actually myeloma cells or not. Um, We can do this by a technique called flow cytometry. We can also do it uh, by next generation uh, sequencing. And Adaptive Biotechnologies has an FDA-approved MRD test that utilizes that latter uh, platform. Um, So when we tell, like, a patient or if you hear, you know, results presented about a clinical trial where they report MRD negativity to the, quote-unquote, 10 to the minus 5 level sensitivity, what that basically means is if you count 100,000 marrow cells, you can't see the myeloma if we say, uh, you know, MRD negativity at 10 to the minus 6 level of sensitivity, that's another way of saying, you know, when we count uh, a million bone marrow cells, we can't see the myeloma. And we know that when you achieve MRD negativity, that translates into improved progression-free as well as overall survival. And the deeper the MRD, the better. So we know that MRD at 10 to the minus 6 uh, is better than MRD negativity at 10 to the minus 5, et cetera. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a valuable technique in clinical trials. Um, it allows us to assess the effectiveness of a regimen uh, with a much earlier readout because at the end of the day, you know, myeloma therapy has gotten so much better in the last several years, you know, that you have to wait years to make an assessment about progression-free survival and overall survival because patients are doing so much better. And that's a good problem to have. You know, the nice thing about MRD negativity is it allows you to assess, you know, the effectiveness of a change in your therapy um, earlier. um, And hopefully we'll be able to start using this technique to get uh, approvals, regulatory approvals for new therapies um, sooner than we otherwise would. Uh, But that does remain a work in progress. Right, because if you think about it, I mean, with patients living longer, your trial might take 10 to 12 years to to get results from. And then if you're using MRD, it might just take three years to get results from. So with the number of trials that you're trying to run, it's better if you can learn things faster and then, you know, incorporate them into the clinic faster than waiting, you know, another 12 years to learn what you're trying to learn. Yeah. Um, no, and then, exactly do right. you use 
Yeah, like do you use MRD um, in your clinic as well outside of clinical trials? And like when would you recommend that your patients get the MRD test? Uh, so that that's a challenging question. Um, what I would say is that it is best positioned as a clinical trial tool um, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, but, you know, it, it is an FDA-approved test. Uh, so where we have used it uh, the most is to assess response to initial induction therapy plus minus consolidation transplant. So the most typical scenario is where you know patients gone through induction therapy, they've gotten their transplant consolidation, and after they've recovered from you know transplant consolidation, you know we basically restage their disease entirely, and we will incorporate MRD testing. Uh, at that time point on a regular basis. Uh, we've also been incorporating MRD testing, you know, um, one year and two years into maintenance therapy. And then, you know, whether we incorporate it beyond that period of time, you know, we kind of take on a case-by-case -case basis. The one thing that I would caution is that um, the FDA approved MRD testing as a prognostic tool. Um, they did not approve it as a tool to um, allow clinicians to make changes to therapy, but mm -hmm. you know you do see that being done in real world setting quite frequently, um, and I would urge a little bit of caution there. Um, have I stopped someone's relevant maintenance therapy because they were having significant side effects and they've achieved a sustained MRD negative state? Absolutely, but there you know the decision was driven not just by their MRD status, but also by, you know, the fact that the patient was having side effects, for example. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any data to escalate therapy, you know, if someone is still MRD positive after transplant? Uh, that remains uh, an open question. Uh, we don't know the answer to that. Um, I do think that for those patients with high-risk myeloma who've gone through initial induction, you know, transplant, and are still MRD positive. I do think that there are many of us who would consider consolidation therapy, um, you know, to drive the response deeper before moving to maintenance therapy, you know, but that is expert opinion. You know, that's not based on randomized trials. And there are randomized trials that are ongoing now that are looking at this very question. You know, and there's two ways to look at it. Can you take someone who's MRD negative and de-escalate their therapy um, and, and do so successfully, you know, without incurring any, you know, um, problems, you know. And similarly, if someone's already positive at a particular point in therapy, can you escalate their therapy, you know, and improve their outcome? So both of these things are being mm -hmm. um, assessed in a randomized setting, and we'll get the answers hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, and you talked about um, this at the very beginning of the show with the, you know, the kind of the four steps, induction, um, transplant, consolidation, maintenance. And just so people always get a little bit confused about consolidation. So induction, like you might use this triplet or this quad therapy first to get you ready, and then you go to transplant, and then you do like maybe a month or two of the same triplet or quad therapy after transplant, that's what you're saying, to deepen the response, and then you go to maintenance, right? Yeah, now the... the um the utility of post-transplant consolidation therapy, um, you know, is 
a bit of a mixed bag. Um, there was a study that was done in the United States where patients who'd been through initial induction therapy and their first transplant were assigned to one of three treatment options. One was to go directly to Revlimid maintenance therapy. Uh, the other group received four additional cycles of Revlimid velocate dexamethasone followed by Revlimid maintenance. And then the third group of patients got a second transplant followed by Revlimid maintenance therapy. And to make a long story short, all three arms did similarly well. There was no difference in progression-free survival amongst the three arms. And that's probably due to the fact that um, there was a lot of variability in the number of cycles that patients received um, prior to their initial stem cell transplant. Um, You know, so I I think, you know, the, the point is you just need to optimize, you know, response um, as best you can, you know, with initial therapy before moving on to transplant, and that's probably the most important thing. Um, when I am using a, a quadruplet, say in a transplant setting, like we did in the Griffin trial, I actually do it in the very same manner that we did it in the trial. You know, what I always tell patients is, you know, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to recapitulate, you know, the the excellent results that you've seen in a clinical trial, you know, you need to kind of adhere to, to what was done in that clinical trial to the best of your ability. And one of the things that we do worry a little bit about when we combine daratumumab with Revlimid in induction therapy is the uh, potential impact on stem cell collection. So in that setting, what we've been doing is we do uh, four three-week cycles of induction therapy, we collect cells, we transplant, and then we give uh, two cycles of uh, post-transplant consolidation with the quad um, after recovery from transplant and then move on to maintenance therapy. Hmm. Interesting. I did not know that. Um, well, I'm not, I might not get to all my questions. <laughs> the time goes faster than you think. Um, let's talk about maintenance therapy a little bit. So in the, for newly diagnosed patients, if they do, you know, these quads and then they go to transplant, you talked about um, usually, you know, people will do Revlimid maintenance or something like that. But can you address using daratumumab or isotuximab as part of your maintenance therapy? Yeah, so... Um, Especially for newly diagnosed patients, I guess, since we're talking about that. Yeah. So uh, that there's no question, you know, that, uh, you know, the CD38 antibodies, you know, are positioned well to, uh, as part of maintenance therapy. Uh, the Cassiopeia trial, which I alluded to earlier, you know, again, that was a study that looked at uh, Velcade thalidomide dexamethasone with or without daratumumab uh, for transplant-eligible patients. Um, but there was a second randomization after recovery from transplant where patients were assigned to either no maintenance therapy or daratumumab maintenance therapy. And the results have not been presented or published yet, but there was a press release by GenMab, which originally developed uh, daratumumab uh, a while back now, stating, you know, that the second randomization achieved its primary endpoint. In other words, you know, daratumumab maintenance therapy uh, was superior with regards to progression-free survival relative to no maintenance therapy, uh, which is a bit of a no-brainer. I mean, you would expect that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the issue of combining, you know, um, say Revlimid, for example, with daratumumab in the maintenance setting, 
is being addressed in a randomized fashion as part of an important SWOG trial. So the SWOG study is taking patients who've been through initial induction and transplant, and it's basically randomizing patients to either Revlimid maintenance therapy, which is the current gold standard, versus Darjalex and Revlimid. And they're looking to see whether the addition of uh, Darjalex uh, to Revlimid maintenance therapy improves the likelihood of achieving MRD negativity and, in fact, improves overall survival. Um, so that'll be an incredibly important study to look at going forward. The other neat thing about that study, you know, and this goes back to what I was talking about before, you know, is that it has a second randomization later on, which I think is perhaps an even more important question to answer. And that is, you know, uh, for those patients that are MRD negative, after two years of maintenance therapy, there is a randomization to either continuing your treatment or stopping. And it'll be very mm -hmm. interesting to see if those patients who stop do just as well as those that continue. And, you know, we may learn that, you know, patients can have a, a long treatment-free interval after their initial therapy, which would be a wonderful thing uh, for patients. Um, but we don't have randomized data yet on Revlimid with either DARA or ESA as maintenance therapy. Now, again, in the Griffin trial that we ran, you know, those patients that were assigned to the daratumumab arm did get two-drug maintenance therapy for the first two years of maintenance. And then mm -hmm. when they were done with that, they continued their Revlimid alone. So, you know, again, you know, when I'm kind of counseling patients and, and we're using that platform, that Griffin platform for therapy, you know, when we get to the point of discussing the maintenance, you know, I do, you know, um, encourage them to consider the possibility of continuing the DARA to MAB under those circumstances, you know, just given the the, the, the positive data that we've seen um, from that trial with regards to MRD negativity. And I will say that, you know, after one year of maintenance therapy in that trial, you know, we saw the, you know, MRD negativity rates, you know, increase substantially um, in that uh, daratumumab arm. So my, my strong suspicion is that the daratumumab addition to Revlimid will make a difference with regards to progression-free survival. Okay, that's so interesting. Okay, very practical question. So if you are a newly diagnosed patient, and let's say you get the quad therapy, like RVD or CARD or something, with your tumumab or ecetuximab up front, and then you go through treatment and you get your stem cell transplant and you go on maintenance therapy and you relapse, would you consider using daratumumab or ecetuximab again at relapse? Um, or like, let's say you use DARA at the beginning, would you use ecetuximab at relapse, or um, I don't know, how do you think about that as a myeloma expert? Yeah, so I think it depends on the circumstances. So let's just say, for example, you know, you decide to treat a patient per the kind of Griffin protocol, if you will. So they have DARA added to their RVD pre and post transplant. Um, they go on DARA rev maintenance therapy for two years and then they continue their Revlimid alone thereafter, and let's say they relapse, you know, six years later. Um, mm -hmm. That patient has not seen daratumumab for years, you know, so the overwhelming likelihood is that the disease that has come back, you know, there's a good chance that that disease may still have sensitivity to a CD38 antibody. So I would argue in that, you know, exaggerated example that I give, you know, that a DARA or ESA-based 
strategy would make a lot of sense. And in that setting, you know, someone progressing on Revlimid maintenance therapy, you know, either daratumumab or esetuximab with, say, Kyprolis and dexamethasone would be a wonderful strategy to treat that patient. If the patient is actually progressing on the CD38 antibody, so if I have a patient with high-risk disease, for example, who's getting treated per the Griffin algorithm, and let's say their disease breaks through the combination of Revlimid and Darzlex maintenance therapy, say a year and a half after their transplant, you know, I don't think that an esetuximab-containing strategy in that situation is going to be uh, successful. Um, I think you're going to see a clear cross-resistance in that setting. There was actually a, a recent uh, publication um, uh, Dr. Joe McHale's the, the the first author on, which looked at esetuximab uh, therapy post daratumumab, um, you know, resistance, and the response rates were incredibly low in that situation, which does suggest that there's you know cross resistance, you know, to the uh, to the true to the two antibodies. Now, the the question though becomes, you know. If you wait a period of time, you know, can, you know, sensitivity to the CD38s be restored? And there may be some truth to that. We do see CD38 levels, for example, increase, you know, over three to six months, you know, post-last dose of daratumumab or esetuximab. You know, so there are ongoing studies that are kind of looking at this specific issue, you know, but a, a lot of studies, you know, where a CD38 antibody is being used in a combination if the patient has had prior resistance to a CD38 antibody, they're requesting at least a six-month washout, you know, before mm -hmm. they get treated with a CD38 antibody again. And again, it's to kind of reestablish those CD38 levels on the myeloma cells. Uh, but I think it's a work in progress as far as how effective they'll be in that setting. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. I think my final question will be um, combining these or or do you replace them or combine them with other immunotherapies? Like, as you said earlier in the show, like the bispecifics are coming and CAR T's coming, and um, these drugs are really quite effective. So do you use them now in combination with these new things, or do, because these are monoclonal antibodies, right? And then some of these others are bispecific or going after two targets instead of right. one. So how do you look at that as a, as a specialist? So it depends on the nature of the uh, monoclonal antibody um, and the immunotherapy that you're planning to combine it with. One of the interesting things about the CD38 antibodies is that not only do they have direct action on the myeloma cells, but they actually do have effects uh, on immune function in myeloma patients. Um, and you can see enhanced T cell responses to myeloma after treatment with daratumumab and esetuximab. So there's actually a strong rationale to combine a CD38 antibody with an immunotherapy, such as a bispecific antibody or CAR-T, as a way of enhancing you know, the effectiveness of the immune response uh, to the underlying myeloma. And a nice example of this is the TRIM-2 trial, which is ongoing now. That's a study that's open at a number of different centers. We have it open here at Levine Cancer Institute. And this is looking at, um, you know, the bispecific antibodies to clistamab, which is directed against BCMA, 
and telquetimab, which is directed against GPC uh, R5D. I, I always mess that up. GPR no, R5D. <laughs> That's what it is. But anyhow, so it's basically uh, looking at those two bispecific antibodies um, and combining, you know, them with uh, subcutaneous daratumumab, with or without palmalidomide. So again, it's it's a way of looking at kind of enhancing the immune. Uh, um, the immune response with the bispecific antibody by incorporating, you know, the, uh, the, the daratumumab or, you know, in this case, also the immunomodulatory drug palmalidomide. So there's definitely a rationale for doing that, and it's in, um, definitely, you know, being tested in ongoing studies. Yeah, well, that will be so fascinating to see, like the combinations with the biospecifics and combining it with the CAR-Ts. And I I know that, um, you know, for these CAR-Ts and these biospecifics, sometimes um, people are saying that the effectiveness of those um, newer immunotherapies really are relevant to the status of the patient's immune system or how strong their immune system is or how strong their T-cells are or whatnot. Um, does using these um, early immunotherapies have any impact, positive or negative, to um, future use of other immunotherapies? I, you know, that's a great question. I don't know that we know the answer to that at this point. Um, what I would say in general is that, you know, to your point, um, the immune system is typically healthiest um, earlier in the course of the disease and when the disease is under better control. So many of us feel that the immunotherapies are going to be best suited for earlier in the course of therapy. Um, but I don't think, you know, that the use of a bispecific or a CAR-T earlier is going to have a negative impact on the use of a subsequent uh, immunotherapy um, the one thing that I would say is that, you know, if the target of the immunotherapy that you use subsequently is the same, it could potentially have an impact. So, for example, we know that one of the mechanisms of resistance to BCMA-directed CAR T-cell therapy is that the myeloma cell loses expression of BCMA on its cell surface. So if the myeloma is not making the target, you know, right, the myeloma is invisible, becomes invisible to the CAR T-cell therapy. So at relapse, if you go in with a BCMA directed by specific antibody, you know, the, the bispecific antibody's got nothing to attach to on the surface of the myeloma cell because BCMA is gone. So, so there, you know, you're going to see cross resistance uh, in that particular setting. But I, I don't think that the story of resistance to BCMA-targeted therapy is cut and dried as just loss of BCMA expression. That's going to be one path to resistance, but there's going to be many different paths. And the path to resistance, you know, is going to dictate whether or not coming in later with a, a, another BCMA-targeted therapy is going to be effective or not. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's so interesting. We have yeah, so much to learn, so thank you so much for running these trials. So I want to open it up for caller questions. If you have a question for Dr. Voorhees, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And um, I also want to just mention, we talked a lot about clinical trials, and we have a clinical trial finder tool that we've partnered with, Spark Cures. 
on Helltree. So if you go to helltree.org and you have an account there, you can see all the specific clinical trials that you are personally eligible to join. So instead of going to clinicaltrials.gov um, and finding like 450 open trials, you can actually find, you know, maybe 10 or 20 or 30 that you're actually eligible to join. So it makes finding the clinical trials a lot easier. Okay, um, we have caller 3696595. Go ahead with your question. Hi, I appreciate you taking my call. I'm just curious, why all of a sudden, it, well, maybe it's not all of a sudden, but I'm just curious, as why is there so much development happening right now in myeloma? Yeah, so that's a uh, fantastic uh, question. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, although it's not uh, the most common, you know, cancer out there, to, to put it mildly, you know, I, I do think, you know, that it is an area, you know, where there are a lot of um, active, you know, investigators uh, in the laboratory, you know, trying to better understand, you know, how myeloma comes to pass, how it works, you know, and what potential targets there are uh, out there. And, you know, I think, you know, success begets success. Um, you know, so, and this has been the case in the setting of melanoma, for example. Um, you know, once, you know, you start seeing success stories in a particular disease, you know, that engenders additional enthusiasm to study that disease, you know, more rigorously. And, you know, patients with multiple myeloma are living far longer uh, than they used to, you know, which affords more opportunities, you know, to develop uh, new therapies. You know, so, again, I think, you know, once, you know, the, 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 the success, successes begin to occur, you know, that just uh, opens it up, you know, for additional opportunities uh, going forward. And uh, one of the other things that I think that has, you know, really been helpful, and this is the case um, in other blood cancers as well, particularly non-Hodgkin lymphoma, you know, you can find targets you know, on these cells, you know, that you can therapeutically target, you know, either with CAR T-cell therapy, for example, or with bispecific antibodies without incurring severe collateral damage, if you will. You know, the targets are relatively selective, you know, for the disease of interest. And in the solid tumor setting, say, for example, in breast cancer, you know, it's harder to find those um, tumor-specific targets that don't that aren't expressed on normal tissues. And I think that we've benefited from that as well. Great question. And um, thank you for your response, but thank you mostly for just doing the research in myeloma. So grateful that um, you and so many other talented investigators are doing this for us and helping us figure out what's best for relapse patients, what's best for newly diagnosed patients and extending those remissions. So, Dr. Voorhees, um, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today and helping us understand more for newly diagnosed patients with using these monoclonal antibodies. Um, we, have, uh, we have one more question, if you don't mind. Um, 224-0111, go ahead with your question. Open, maybe that was, they just pushed the wrong button. 
<laughs> so we'll close okay. with that today. But Dr. Voorhees, thank you so much for participating today. We just appreciate you so much and all the work you're doing for us on our behalf. Not a problem, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio. We invite you to join us next time to learn more about what's happening in myeloma research and what it means for you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.